From the beautiful city of Hollywood, we bring you Film Forward, the official podcast of the Los Angeles Diversity Film Festival. Hey, hey, everybody. Welcome to Film Forward, the official podcast of the Los Angeles Diversity Film Festival. And it is 2023, apparently, allegedly, and we're back. Film Forward is back, LADFF is back, and we're starting out the new year with a new screening on January 12th, which is later this week. We are going to be screening the Los Angeles premiere of Save Me From Everything, which is a mystery thriller film starring Paige Henderson, and it is co-directed by Anthony Baldino and our guest today, returning guest, Ryan Layson, who also wrote the film. Ryan Thanks for joining us again here on Film Forward, and Happy New Year, my friend. How's your new year going a few days into it here? Yeah, Happy New Year. Great to be here. Obviously, you don't have to twist my arm in order to talk about movies, so uh, always glad to jump on the Film Forward podcast. Right. How's the new year treating you so far in this futuristic 2023 we're in? Honestly, it feels like it hasn't even hit yet. You know, last year went by so fast that it's like you just blink and you wake up and you're like, oh, wait, it's already January 2023. Yeah, it's pretty bananas. I feel like I'm still like in 2019. I'm like, I wasn't really ready for 2020. And now here we are. But you know what? It's going to be a great year, damn it. This is the 10th anniversary of LADFF this year. It's going to be our best year yet. And we're starting it off with your film, Save Me From Everything. So before we talk about our subject today, which is, since your film is a female-led thriller, we decided, you know what would be fun, instead of just doing your standard interview about the film, which we're going to do at the Q&A anyway, why don't we do a gimme three of other female-led thrillers? So that is the subject of today. That's what's on the docket. Before we get into our gimme three, let's talk briefly about Save Me From Everything, a beautiful and crazy film (laughs) that you guys shot in Ireland, right? Yeah, we shot in a gory Ireland. My very first time to the country and hopefully not my last. What was it like shooting, directing a film on a micro budget in a foreign country? Honestly, shooting in Ireland might have been like, that whole country is probably one of the most film friendly places I've ever been to. Like you mentioned, it was a micro budget. So to be able to go out there with not the huge typical studio budget, it's like you kind of have to make every dollar stretch. And the second we got there, it was like the entire town of Gory was so excited just to have a film shooting there that it was like, you want to shoot in this bar? Please come in. We'll we'll close down Monday. You can have the entire bar. You need more extras than what you already have allotted for. We'll call a couple of our friends. They'll leave their bar and come on down and be in the back of your scene. It was just like so magical to see kind of a whole town come together to kind of bring this movie into the reality of the final film. So if you're going to go to Ireland, as long as you're shooting in a bar somewhere, the Irish will help you. Is that, that's the big takeaway. Basically, if you have a bar location, Ireland can accommodate you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Tell us a little bit about Save Me From Everything. Talk to us about the plot and where, where the inception of this film came from. So basically the core of Save Me From Everything is it's about an American girl who travels to Ireland to meet a stranger who will, you know, hopefully help her uncover a family curse. But underneath that, it's basically a movie about, I guess, fear of getting older. And that's kind of where the initial like concept came from, was just this fact of like, as you know, we start to like progress like in age and stuff like that, life just kind of starts to change and to kind of turn, you know, there's kind of like this fear, at least for myself, that kind of came along with it, 
am I exactly where I want to be in life? You know, am I exactly the same person like I thought I would be by this age? So I want to kind of like boil that down into the conception and then just kind of build this weird, strange, like thriller around it. I think that's a feeling that a lot of artists go through. <laughs> you know, kind of around this time also with this, with like always the start of the new year. It's always that analysis of like, what did I do? What did I accomplish in this last year? And I'm getting older and what's going to be my mark? What do we have to offer this world as it's ever changing? And I think your film encapsulizes that anxiety very well. Yeah. When basically this whole thing came up too, I was in post-production on another film for this, you just kind of want to get back to the, the roots of like do-yourself filmmaking too. You know, we spent so much time just trying to get like the perfect budget and trying to get someone else to green light something that when this came up, my partner, Anthony Baldino at Normal was like, hey, we keep waiting for all these other scripts to get green lit. Why don't we just go and make something? So we were able to kind of pull together like a very, very modest budget and just like a group of other people that we've always wanted to like work with and make films with. We got this great cast, went to Ireland, and we're basically not going to let anything stop us. We're like, we're going to make this film no matter what. And I think Simi From Everything is like a good testament to just, you know, if you want to make a film, just go off and do it yourself. That's beautiful. That's a beautiful story and inspiration. And this is, like you said, it's kind of thriller. It rides the line of horror and mystery, which was a new genre for you to tackle as a director and a writer. Was that fun to kind of like, spread your wings and go into a new genre? Was it scary or exciting? Yeah, I mean, it was honestly, it was all those things. It was it was scary, it was exciting. I think the biggest thing too was like after like making two films before that were, I guess, more along the lines of drama, to be able to do something that actually has like blood and a little bit of gore and, and a witch yeah. in it definitely kind of made the filmmaking process a little bit more of an adventure for myself personally. And honestly, when you're on set and you're just like spilling blood everywhere and like doing like, you know, kind of effects, it's, it's kind of fun. Well, that's awesome, dude. Save me from everything. It's going to be screening with us, LADFF, on January 12th, which is a Thursday night. It's going to be at the Lemley NoHo 7, which is in North Hollywood, an incredible theater, our favorites. We've screened there before and we got to support that theater because they're on the ropes right now, and we'll have more information on our website about how to save that theater. But a good start would be to join us on January 12th for the amazing film, Save Me From Everything. So now we're going to dive into our Give Me Three female-led thrillers. Goddamn, these movies were fun to watch and totally exhilarating. We're going to let you start it off, Ryan. Give me three female-led thrillers. Let's get your first one. Yes, my very first one is Kimmy. The uh, Steven Soderbergh thriller that came out last year. And this mm-hmm. film, basically, it takes place during the COVID pandemic. The main character, played by the wonderful Zoe Kravitz, she had previously suffered from, I think, agoraphobia. And with the pandemic, it kind of like brought this back out and kind of she went into this like kind of relapse. So she's been shut in her apartment for, you know, many months. And now here she is and she uncovers evidence for a murder. And what a freaking character. What a great way to set up a character. Agoraphobic, coming off the heels of the COVID-19 pandemic. It's like right off the bat, you got like all of these like stakes and conflict and like very intense setup that like totally works and that we could all kind of relate to as we're coming out of the pandemic ourselves. And honestly, I've not liked any movie that's kind of surrounded itself around COVID-19. This is the first one where I was like, this is a great backdrop for this film. Yeah, absolutely. This film was just like so much fun to watch. It kind of like starts out, you know, starts out as like 
it's got like a rear window vibe because she's like watching a lot of stuff like happen from her window, looking across the other apartment complex across the alley. She kind of has like a relationship with one of those guys and there's this rear window vibe. And then like when it kicks into another gear, it kind of transforms into like a modern run Lola run. It's like really just a blast. It never stops surprising you. Yeah. Two of my favorite movies of all time is Rear Window and Blowout, the John Travolta uh, uh, yeah. Palma film. Mm-hmm. And uh, Kimmy basically felt like you put those two films into a blender and then throw in, you know, COVID-19 and this is kind of what you get. So not only is like such a fun ride, but for myself too, kind of going back to the same from everything idea of like, if you want to make a movie, just go off and make it. This film, if you eliminate basically Steven Soderbergh, a couple of celebrity cameos, maybe the Beastie Boys and, you know, Cliff Martinez as your composer, you can make this film on a very, very low budget and you wouldn't have had to sacrifice too much. Absolutely. Yeah. A good majority of it takes place in one location, small cast numbers, and it's really the tension is told through the character development and the plot devices really masterful storytelling by Sodenberg and just like a incredible, incredible performance by Zoe Kravitz, who has had a, a great year between this and the Batman. She's so uh, good. She's killing it. So good. And her hair is fucking dope. Yeah. In this. Everything she touches, man. I'm like, Zoe Kravitz is in it. I'm going to see this film. And Sodenberg, he's, he's got this kind of like this uh, train of straight to streaming thrillers right now that are just like, each one is like really impressive. And I'm like, this guy's just making bangers and releasing them out to the wild and almost no no publicity for them. And each one of them is like more brilliant than the last. It's the dude crazy. just likes to make movies. I think at the end of the day, Soderbergh's like, I don't even care. I just want to make a film. And I had the luxury yeah. of, so basically when I graduated college, you know, I was like, oh, I want to work in a film set so bad. I want to kind of see, you know, the whole kind of minutia of like how to actually make like a, a studio film. And I got a job in a Steven Soderbergh set as a, a production assistant for Haywire. And he made this entire action movie, like in the course of like, like 25 days, something ridiculous. And the guy shoots like eight hours a day, gets a shot, moves on, doesn't spend any time on any unnecessary coverage that he doesn't need. He knows what he wants. Right. He gets it and moves on. It, it's incredible to watch. And for the most part, he DPs his own stuff too. For Kimmy, he shot it himself. Yeah. Incredible film, my friends. Kimmy, check it out. It's streaming right now, actually, on uh, HBO Max. As we said, it's just a fun thrill ride. Kimmy is written by David Kep of Jurassic Park fame and Spider-Man fame, and also wrote the next film that we're going to be talking about, which is my first pick, Panic Room, which stars Jodie Foster, one of the greatest living actresses out there today. And it's directed by Mr. David Fincher. This story follows Meg Altman, that's Jodie Foster, who just got divorced. The guy kind of like screwed her over, cheated on her. She's with her preteen child, which is played by a very young Kristen Stewart. And they're looking for this new place. And they find this incredible property in Manhattan. Like really incredible. Four stories, all these rooms. And this is kind of where like immediately within the first five minutes, you're like, all right, we're in for some fantastical stuff because there's no way that this property would even be on the market for seven minutes, much less a day. <laughs> but uh, but in any case, they find this house. And in this house, there's also there happens to be a, a panic room, this room that has like these solid steel doors, security cameras covering the whole property. It's got, uh, you know, blankets and like 
all this. It's it's like a survivalist wet dream in this joint. And Jodie Foster's character is a little like perturbed by this room because she's afraid of enclosed spaces. In any case, they buy it because the deal and the property is too good. And on their first night alone, of course, there's a break in. Three men break into the house because there's also happens to be a fortune in that house that is in the safe, which is in the panic room. Mom, daughter go in the panic room and it becomes a game of a battle of wits kind of as like the intruders are trying to lure Meg and her daughter out of that panic room. And Meg and her daughter are trying to find ways to get the intruders to leave. I was a big fan of this movie when it first came out. It was like one of the first films I like got on DVD when it came out. And my mom was really into it. And I think because like I was raised by a single mom. I think my mom just liked watching a single mom kick ass in a movie and like outwit these three bozos and evil dudes. But it never got old watching this movie. I was telling Sonia, my wife, the other day that I used to watch this movie a lot. She's like, that's a dark movie to like kind of have in your rotation. But it's because it was so exciting. Like every scene is just so thrilling, pulse pounding. And it's just like very, very well executed. Jodie Foster elevates the film quite a bit. See, what's interesting too, is I had the reverse effect. When I first saw the movie coming off of Seven and Fight Club, I left the theater being disappointed. Because I was like, oh, you know, that's fine. But, you know, it wasn't Fight Club or Seven. But rewatching this film, so, so good. Not only does this movie like hold up, but it also makes me feel like I think I missed the point when it first came out. Because this movie is so well-crafted, so smart. Jodie Foster not only kicks ass, but delivers such like a this nuanced, deep performance that like by the time she gets to the end and where she does some pretty gnarly stuff, feels like an incredible departure from the character that we saw in the beginning. Yeah, she's a fighter, this character. And she's, you know, she's fighting for a bunch of stuff that we don't even see before the film takes place. There's some feminist ideas in here as well. Like the villains, as soon as they get into the house and discover that somebody's actually in there, that the house has already been bought and people are living in there, they're very quick to undermine Meg saying like, oh, it's just a woman. Don't worry, we can still do this. Uh, and of course, uh, spoiler alert, doesn't turn out too well for those guys. An incredible, incredible thrill ride. Yeah, it's probably not Fincher's best work or most dense work, but it's like a great, great popcorn film and a great, great performance. Wonderful piece of acting by Jodie Foster. And also for film that takes place mostly in one location, I think Fincher did, what, 2,000 shots in this one house, which is pretty incredible wow. for like one film. And each one feels unique, you know, like the, the coverage never feels tired or like we're looking at the same thing over and over again. Like we're in this house for the entirety of the film and it always, you're never bored. No, never bored from beginning bored. to end. And what a perfect cast too. And it's interesting to think about mm-hmm. like the other version of Panic Room too, back when it was like Nicole Kidman and Darius Kanji. But- yeah, You know, obviously it's a very different movie, but just to think about like the direction that film went opposed to like the Jodie Foster, Conrad Hall film, which turned out obviously amazing. Yeah. And I, I should mention the intruders are played by Forrest Whitaker, who's kind of the intruder with the heart of gold, you know, and then Jared Leto and Dwight Yoakam, who is like the real bad guy. And he's great. Dwight Yoakam is great. In this. Yeah. So my friends, Panic Room, if you haven't seen it, Check it out. I think it's quite underrated. As I mentioned, my mom and I used to watch it a lot. It was on rotation frequently in our early DVD collecting days. 
it is available to rent wherever you can rent your streaming things, or you can go to Cinephile Video on Santa Monica Boulevard and show some love to your local video store if you live in Los Angeles. Ryan, let's get your second pick, sir. All right. 10 Cloverfield Lane. So this film basically starts off with one of the best like 10 minutes I've seen, you know, in cinema in a long time. Basically after a car crash, a woman wakes up in a bunker where a captor tells her that, you know, there's been a disaster above ground and we're stuck down here for, you know, a year, maybe two. So the film starts off with a bang. You basically, you, you don't know who she is. You don't really know who this guy is. All you know is like this setup and that's it. And then the film just gets going. And you have Mary Elizabeth Weinstein who plays the, the protagonist. The captor is played by John Goodman in probably one of his scariest and best roles. Yeah. I had never seen this film before you told me that it was one of your picks. I just watched it for the first time. And man, what a great film. Talk about twists and turns. A film that just continues to subvert your expectations. And as soon as you think you've figured it out, it pulls the rug from underneath you. You got some other you know, mystery to solve and some other character to to uh, eye suspiciously. Mary Elizabeth Winstead, man. She's so cool. I worked with her one time for one day and she was just like so gosh darn cool and like confident and just like, my gosh, I would like to like have a beer with you. You know, she seems so down to earth and such a great actor. Her and McGregor, what a power couple. But but her performance in this is like incredible because she's she's doing something which I, I always find very difficult where she's giving a performance within a performance. You know, she's doing a performance for John Goodman's character underneath her already great performance. When actors are able to pull that off, it just really blows me away. She pulls it off uh, immaculately. Yeah, it's like the, through the entire film, she's like the, permeating this like strength despite her like terrifying captivity. But she always has this like need for survival that never wanes. And it's like so much stressful fun to watch her like constantly search for ways to like outsmart what could be, you know, either her captor or her savior. Yeah, totally. And then when the credits rolled on this, I, I saw that uh, Damien Chazelle was one of the writers on this. I had no idea. Yeah. Seems totally uh, out of left field for him, but I guess it's a credit to, to his writing. Very well-crafted thriller slash horror screenplay. Really, really well-crafted. And what's interesting, too, is like, so after I finished the rewatch for this, I went and found the original script. And obviously, the script was written before it was like a Cloverfield sequel. So it's basically just Mm -hmm. about like this, like woman who was like, you know, wakes up in the bunker and she's helped with this captor. And this is before Damon Chazelle jumped into it. And it's a very different movie. You know, the concept is still the same, but just like the dynamic between even their relationship is very different. So you can see how like Damon Chazelle kind of came in and put his own stamp on it. And a lot of it is honestly just stripping it down to the core of like, I guess the humanity between these two people but also keeping like the, the mystery a little bit more broad than the original script. It was really kind of an interesting contrast to like watch the film and then reread that too. That is very interesting. It's like almost hard to imagine the film without that dense character dynamic because it's it really feels like it's the heart of the film. It sets it aside from what could be just another you know, Cloverfield movie. You know? Completely. Uh, yeah another piece of the franchise. And that's what's fun about it too, is like you just never know who to trust throughout this film. I mean, you really get no backstory on Mary's character. You get no backstory really on John Goodman's character. You're just kind of finding out along with them who each person is and if what they're saying is also the truth. 
10 Cloverfield Lane. If you haven't seen it, like me, who hadn't seen it, please check it out. Again, Mary Elizabeth Winstead, tremendous performance. And you can get that wherever you rent your digital media. It's also available on Paramount Plus. If you're a Paramount Plus subscriber, which I recommend, they've got a great catalog. Okay, talking about pulling the rug out from the audience. Mulholland Drive, ever heard of it? What a film. (laughs) What a film. It stars Naomi Watts, and it's directed by the first of two major sick fucks that I'm going to talk about today, David Lynch. The plot, I'm pretty impossible to summarize, so I'm not even going to try because like, trying to summarize the plot is actually a deterrent to the film. So if you haven't seen it, the plot is irrelevant. But what is relevant are the ideas and the themes of which there is like so many different essays and film theories about what this film is about and what it's trying to say. And Lynch himself has said, like, you know, I want every viewer to kind of come up with their own interpretation for what this film is. My interpretation of what this film is, is how the dream of stardom, specifically movie stardom, can drive individuals to madness. And Naomi Watts delivers this message in like two very different ways. The fantastical, ideal, star-driven, you know, up-and-comer and the person who's been totally wrecked when that dream becomes a nightmare. And we see both versions of it in one like mind-blowing performance. This movie is obviously talked about a lot and like it gets a lot of credit, but I don't think Naomi Watts gets enough credit for her performance that just totally, totally drives this film. And what I love about her performance so much is those like with each watch, and this is not a movie that you could like watch every year because it's so like dense uh, and it's filled with so much like symbolism and ideas and you know allusions to other films like Sunset Boulevard and Vertigo. But with each watch, I just get like a different interpretation on Naomi Watts's character Betty. Sometimes her story just feels like so tragic and and relatable. And other times I watch it and it feels like so fantastical and horrific. But with each viewing, it just, you know, like her performance gives me a totally different feeling, which I think is the mark of A, a good piece of art, and then just B, of an incredible performance. Mulholland Drive, what's your thoughts on this crazy-ass film, Ryan? What's interesting about this film, too, is I still remember the very first time I watched it, which was, I think, when the movie came out, 2001. And Mm -hmm. uh, I rented it from uh, Hastings, my my local video store in uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico. You know, watching it, I had no clue about the realities of like living in Los Angeles. I had no idea what it's like to actually really work on a film set or in the film industry. So I was just completely removed from that whole world. So kind of like the Betty character, it felt like a dream to me, you know, even the concept of living in Los Angeles. And my big takeaway from it originally was just, you know, one, the fantastical aspect of LA and Hollywood, but also too, like the revelation of like, who is this Naomi Watts actress? She's absolutely phenomenal. She's the heartbeat of this film, but her, her performance is so incredibly layered and the subtext that she brings to some of her choices is just absolutely incredible. But re-watching it now, after working in the film industry and living in Los Angeles for, you know, 13 years, like I understand the second half of the movie, which is basically, you know, Naomi Watts' character's reality. And now I feel like I can relate to her Diane character 
Whereas originally I felt like more relating to the Betty character. And now it's like actually understanding right. what this film is really about. And you know, what you're talking about is just the hardships of trying to make it as like an artist or like even like as a dreamer. Absolutely, man. And what a freaking mind fuck this entire film is too. <laughs> I think, I think what yeah. is so beautiful about this movie is kind of what David Lynch said too, is like, I want every single person to walk away from this film and have a different experience. I want this movie to mean something to, you know, person A and to person B have a completely different feeling about what this movie means. And also even too about like whether or not they liked it or not, you know, like to have a yeah, film right. be absolutely loved in on critics, like top hundred films of all time list, and then have other people completely despise the film, I think obviously a good example of art. Yeah, I totally agree. If you're not able to like have a discussion about a, a piece of art after the film, then it's probably, you know, just popcorn. If it's just a, oh yeah, that was good. Then, you know, what did it really offer us? Mulholland Drive offers a lot in terms of conversation, what it leaves you with. And as you said, a total mindfuck. Your brain will hurt after watching this in the best way imaginable. Mulholland Drive, and it stars Naomi Watts, and it's directed by David Lynch. And you can read it at Cinephile Video, or you can call me up, and I've got the Criterion Edition Blu-ray, and you can borrow that. I'll let you borrow my Criterion Edition Blu-ray. But if you don't return it, not good. Not good, that's all I can say. On that note, we're going to take a break, Ryan. And when we come back, I hope you've got your third pick ready because we're going to give our third and final picks. Give me three female-led thrillers when we return on Film Forward. We'd like to take a minute to talk about LADFF sponsor E-Minutes. E-Minutes is a corporate entertainment law firm that handles the corporate minutes for more than 38,000 entities involved in the entertainment industry. Like last year, they're sponsoring an award with the Los Angeles Diversity Film Festival called the Emerging Filmmaker Award. You can learn more about our partnership with E-Minutes Arts and their mission to amplify the voices of underrepresented storytellers at eminutes.com forward slash arts. That's eminutes.com forward slash arts. Welcome back to Film Forward, everybody. We are here with writer and director Ryan Leeson. He's going to be screening his film, Save Me From Everything, with LADFF on January 12th. And you can come see it with us. We're going to be at the Lemley NoHo 7. Tickets are available right now at LADFF.com. But right now, he's going to give us his third and final choice as we do our Gimme Three female-led thrillers. He gave us Kimmy. He gave us 10 Cloverfield Lane. I gave you Panic Room and Mulholland Drive. And Ryan's third and final pick is Black Swan. So basically, if you want to get your mind totally screwed up with, how about a double feature of Mulholland Drive and Black Swan? Yeah, what a pairing. What an identity crisis pairing. <laughs> yeah. And like Black Swan's here. So the plot boils down to like a young ballet dancer who basically buys against the competition and her mental sanity to land the lead role in the company's new rendition of Swan Lake. So just from like a log line, you're like, okay, cool. Sounds like a normal movie. 
this movie is a complete descent into madness. It is a mind trip. And it is also a, a work of like cinematic, like masterpiece. Darren Aronofsky, just like from beginning to end, this movie is so impressive. It's so messed up and it's just a wild, fun ride. And uh, Natalie Portman is the lead. What year did this come out? I don't know, but she won the Oscar for it, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, I think so. It was like 2000, 2010. It feels like this was a huge departure from the types of films that she was doing before this. Because, I, you know, like, she, obviously she did the Star Wars film. Like, she started at Leon the Professional, which is a dark film. But, but, but after that, it was like Star Wars films, Where the Heart Is. A lot of, you know, a, she did a lot of amazing, amazing work. But it was, she was kind of like in the like family rom-com world for a while. And then she comes out with this performance, which is one of the most horrifying and like long-lasting damaging performances uh, that I can remember in the last 25 years. She really pushes not only herself in this film, but the audience. And it's like a total experience of like uh, dread and like empathy and it's like so many so much going on in this performance the physicality of the role alone is already incredible mm. but then where she goes mentally is obviously what earned her the oscar what i love about black swan too is like i always have this fascination with duality like who we think we are mm. who we really are as well as what we're actually capable of especially when it comes to accomplishing our dreams and that's basically the, the, the crutch of like this whole film. It's, you know, so masterfully crafted and acted. And there's also like, it's kind of like Mulholland Drive too, in the sense where like you can walk away after this film and like sit and have a discussion with a friend and your interpretation of this film might be very different than theirs. And also kind of where you think the film goes once the, the end credits comes up could be very different than the other person watching it too. And what I found kind of interesting on my rewatch as well is how the film kind of slowly tackles like three different generations of dancers with obviously Portman, Portman's mom played by the incredible Barbara Hershey and uh, Winona Ryder. And then depending on like yeah. what you believe happens to Natalie's character in the film too, it's kind of interesting to see like, does she kind of end up going the path of like her mother or does she end up going the path of Winona Ryder's character? Big questions to ask and to explore. And as you said, just like that exploration of duality. A lot of similarities between this and Mulholland Drive, I would say. You know, right down to that alternate rival slash other artists that you're trying to like compare yourself to. Like those characters are very prominent in both Mulholland Drive and Black Swan. Really just incredible work. And as you know, Ryan, I'm a, I'm a big wrestling fan, pro wrestling. I cover pro wrestling as a journalist for the Sportster. But there's this saying in wrestling that I hate where these old guys always say, it ain't ballet, trying to like undermine ballet as like a hard or like physical sport or art. And when I first saw this film, I know diddly squat about ballet, but I was like, bro, ballet is like... So much like wrestling. In fact, Darren Aronofsky's next movie was, or the one before this, was The Wrestler. Like, I don't think it's a coincidence that he made those two movies back to back because uh, they are so similar. They are both so incredibly, brutally, physically taxing. And uh, they can both really, if you are not careful, deteriorate the body and the mind. So if any of my old wrestling guys are listening to this, I say, 
poo-poo to that quote. Yeah, I think Black Swan's definitely, within like the first couple frames of that film to the physicality of it, I'm like, I think I would probably quit day one of trying to do ballet. 100%. Not for me. Not for me. But respect for the people that do it and respect for Natalie Portman and the entire cast for, for knocking this out of the park. Black Swan, it is available to rent wherever you rent your online or physical films. And if you're in for another freaky dance film, my third and final pick is Climax by the second sick fuck of the night, Gaspar Noe. Probably the sickest of fucks, to be honest. This movie is absolutely bananas. It stars Sofia Butella. She plays Selva, a dance choreographer, and she's got this group of dancers. They are gathering in this, like, I think it's an empty school or something, rehearsing before, like, a big competition or a big performance. And they do this all night celebration on, like, it's snowing outside. So they're all kind of hunkered in. They're doing this celebration. And somebody in the dance troupe, you don't really know who until the end, but somebody has laced the sangria with very intense LSD and the hallucinations spread like wildfire. And this celebration turns into a freaking horror show. And it is a really, really bananas experience. The filmmaking aspect, Gaspar Noe does this thing where he like totally subverts the structure of a film. He gives you the end image first so you know where like what the end game is he gives you like the full credits like as if you had just watched the film like all the way down like through the you know music licensing and mpaa rating like all that stuff like he gives you all that and then there's like a prologue and then he goes into the film and it's like he does all these things to like mess with you and put you on edge but it doesn't really get crazy until about a little over halfway through the film. And once it does, good God, does it not pull any punches. When the film ends, you kind of realize why he did that thing with the credits at the beginning, or at least I, I did, because it's just like the, when the film ends, the film ends. Like you don't have the credits to sit there and think about like how brutal this experience you just went through was. You just like it ends and it's like black lights up. <laughs> you're like, oh God, turn the lights off again, please. This is, I need a moment. But I picked this film because Sofia Batella's performance is like, she starts with like such power and such confidence and she's so cool. And she's got these incredible dance moves and she like commands this group. Like she's a, like a boss. And little by little, we see her like totally lose control. It's kind of the inverse of some of the films that we've talked about, like Kimmy or Panic Room, where this introvert kind of like gains control and, and, and becomes a badass. This is the reverse of that. And, uh, and it's like really mesmerizing to watch her performance here. And she's really the only, I think, trained actor in this film. I think most everybody else were, uh, were dancers because there is incredible, incredible dancing in this film on top of horrific stuff. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the first 30 minutes is just pure dance party, but it's so fascinating and captivating to watch. When I first saw this movie, I saw it in LA at a theater, like a seven o'clock screening, like on a Friday night by myself because nobody else wanted to see this film. And within the first 45 minutes of the movie, I think I saw maybe four or five people get up and walk out. 
And then obviously, you know, the next hour happens, the entire like rest of us who remain there are just stuck, captivated, could not look away. You don't breathe for like the last 10 minutes of the film. And then when it ended, the person that was standing in front of me got up and just gave it like a five minute standing ovation by himself. And I think that's a testament to this film. People are going to walk out and some random dude's going to stand up and do like a standing ovation for five minutes by himself. Yeah, I think if you want to go back into our archives, the 2019 Gimme 3 or 2020 Gimme 3 where we discuss our favorite films from 2019, this was one of mine. And it was just because it smacked me across the face so hard that I was like, I will never forget the cinematic experience of seeing this film in a theater. I also saw it by myself, Ryan, because nobody wanted to see it with me because Gaspar Noe has a reputation. But when I saw it, I was A, higher than giraffe pussy, as they say, and B, alone in the theater. There was nobody else in the theater, which made it all the more like distressing. Woo-wee. Climax. Here's the thing I'll say about Climax for those who haven't seen it. It sounds like an intense uh, experience to watch it, and it is. But I will say the second viewing actually is less intense and quite enjoyable because you know who's done the what and you understand a little bit more about the people. The second viewing is really where you get to see how well this story is told and how great the uh, filmmaking techniques that they use in this film are. Because upon the first viewing, you're just like along for the ride and it's really hard to like analyze anything. But the second, third viewing, mm, that's where you're really able to uh, see how well this film is made and how great Sofia Batella's performance is. I'm also envious of anyone that gets to watch it for the first time, though, too. Just to get to go back and relive that sucker punch of watching this movie. And also, like you were saying, Sofia is so fearless in this role. You know, for an actress, I think she started off as just like a, a dancer for, you know, the first part of her career. Just to see her go into like these type of roles that like, I mean, you can have like an actor that's spent their entire time coming out of Juilliard and you spent their entire career, you know, like working on the craft. And what she does in this performance is just so like deep and just incredible to watch. And a lot of it too is just, it's not dialogue driven. You're watching just like the emotions like from her face and even from her dance style kind of emote her entire kind of uh, uh, emotional state. It's, it's really something to watch. Climax, my friends. It is available to stream on Showtime if you got Showtime, or you can rent it anywhere you rent your, your online films, or as I mentioned again, and I'll keep plugging them, Cinephile Video, which is on Santa Monica Boulevard. What is on Lancashire Boulevard is the Lemley NoHo 7, and that's where we're going to be screening Save Me From Everything, the film written and co-directed by Ryan Layson. And we hope you all will join us. It's January 12th. Tickets are available right now at LADFF.com. Ryan, on a scale of 1 to 10, how excited are you for the LA premiere of Save Me From Everything? Well, LADFF is my favorite festival and Wembley, you know, 7 is my favorite theater. So I put this at a solid 10. Cool. You heard it here first, everybody. Suck that, Con. We're Ryan Layson's favorite. And... We want to thank you, Ryan, for helping us out and doing this Gimme 3 with us. What a blast it was to talk about the film. What a blast it was just to uh, revisit these films because uh, some of them I hadn't seen and some of them I was long overdue for a revisit. 
Yeah. Imagine watching all six of these movies in the same weekend. That's uh, basically what I did. And it was <laughs> like when, when uh, I was pre- preparing this episode, I was like 10 Cloverfield Lane and like Kimmy were the last two that I watched. And I was like, oh man, I'm, I shouldn't really ask him like how his 2023 is going because the world's ending, you know? I was like, wait a second. No, the world's not ending. I was just the, the movies I've been watching, but, or maybe the world is ending. Who knows? In any case, Thanks for joining us on Film Forward, everybody. We'll see you on January 12th, and we'll catch you next time on Film Forward. See you at the movies. Our recording engineer and mixer is Anselm Kennedy. The podcast is produced by Anselm, Sonia Maru, and yours truly. Thanks for joining us on Film Forward, and you'll hear us next time.